Ephesians chapter 6. I'd like for us to begin again putting our mind into the perspective of the spiritual warfare that we talked about this morning by reading through verses 10 to 18 again and uh, really just kind of focusing in on where do we stand? We stand in the Lord's strength and in the power of His might. What do we stand with? We stand with the armor of God that He has supplied us with. And then tonight, focused on how do we use that armor? What are the pieces that we have? And how do we use it effectively? If we have it, we possess it, then it makes sense to use it, doesn't it? Um, Doesn't make sense to hold something that uh, you won't ever use, um, although we probably do that in our houses quite a bit. But let's let's read the text together. Get Get the full text in our mind, and then we'll begin with a word of prayer and then join together. The Word of God says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Let me stop for just a second. I, I just the, the picture just came to my mind as I was as I was just reading that word be strong. Paul is sitting in a he's he's kind of under house arrest during this time. So he's chained to a Roman soldier. So I kind of find it, you know, it's not ironic, but it's it's interesting how Paul must have just been writing through to the Ephesians. And he gets done with writing to the, the children in verse 1, and verse, you know, then, the, then the dads, and then the, the servants, and, and kind of going through. And then he just probably says, man, there's got to be a better illustration to close this book up. And next thing you know, maybe he just taps his, tin, you know, his pen on the, on the breastplate of the, of the soldier. I don't, I don't know. We don't know. I'm just making you know, the story of that, of that. But, you know, oh, man, what a perfect illustration to wrapping this up. Right. As, as he's kind of doing that. And I want to just get, get in your mind the visual of where Paul, he's, he's a prisoner. He's not free, right? Now he's under house arrest, which is a glorious thing compared to being in the prisons of, of his day. But the reality is he's not a free man. And the picture that he's trying to display for us as a soldier is who he's attached to in this, in this way. <laughs> this soldier has heard the gospel, I guarantee it. Time and time again, if he hasn't trusted Christ by this point, <laughs> I don't know, all right? Verse, back, back to verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, the entirety of it, that ye may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Because of who we're battling against, he again reiterates to us, verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take in the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Let's let's go to the Lord and ask for wisdom tonight. Father, as a people, we are in desperate need of you feeding us, and we come tonight hungry for your word. Lord, we come hungry asking for you to, to feed us abundantly from your table. And God, I pray as we open your word tonight, as we look at the text, that you would help feed us. I pray that we would help, you would help me to look at us, to look at it accurately so that we can apply it appropriately. Lord, that we would, through this time, be conformed to the image of Christ, your Son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. This morning, we began to look at what is called the signature passage on spiritual warfare. When anybody really begins to talk about spiritual warfare, they typically come to Ephesians chapter 6. Although there's other times where spiritual warfare is drawn out, this is the one passage that really lays out the reality of where we are in the spiritual life when it comes to the battlefield. So let me reiterate a couple of things that we talked about this morning. There are two extreme views of the Christian as it relates to spiritual warfare and the devil. Right? The first is that people overplay the ability and activity of the devil. They see a demon behind every bush. They attribute to Satan every failure and every defeat in their lives. And this causes them to take no responsibility for their actions. We talked about that this morning. It's where we get the phrase, the devil made me do it. Folks, the devil doesn't make you do diddly squat. Right? Right? He's got a whole bunch of people in the army that are are desiring us to do more than we ought to do, given into the flesh. But the reality is, by taking this view, we give the devil too much credit. The result of that mindset means that you attribute to him attributes that only belong to God. In essence, you believe that the sovereignty of Satan is greater than the sovereignty of God, although you wouldn't say it, your actions indicate that. You live in quaking fear of the devil and the power that he holds over the world. However, the second view, which I think is probably a little softer on us, but it probably is closer to where most of us would live and the way our actions are defined. This view is the one that underestimates Satan and his demons. We live as if there is no spiritual enemy. We know that it's there, we talk about it, but our actions indicate that we... We have God on our side. I have nothing to fear. Well, that's true. I must live that out in accordance with His Word, not in my own strength. They tend to overlook any demonic activity. They believe that Satan is already bound and confined to the pit of hell. They do not see Satan as a roaring lion, as 1 Peter would tell us he is, that he's ready to devour. They falsely imagine that all activities surrounding them are activities that God ordains. We know from the book of James that God does not tempt man with evil. He's not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man with evil. Right? So then we have to make the argument then is if if that's truly the case, if Satan is bound and the sovereignty of God is greater in that way, then where does temptation come from? These believers are ignorant concerning Satan's schemes. It's not that they think too little of Satan but the reality is that they do not think of him at all. They presume that the sovereignty of God negates any work of the devil and is to be of no concern to them at all. Paul is not writing to these Ephesians because he has little to no concern with their battle against the devil, but really on the contrary. He's just written a book of how do you practically live the Christian life. Given the theology of, here's what this looks like, the theology of Christian living in in chapters 1 to 3 and the application of that. In, verses, in chapters 4 to 6. And he's drawing the conclusion now. Here's the spiritual battle and why this is so important for us to engage in. And Paul's extremely burdened by this. His whole life is a testimony of what this looks like and the fact that he's in the spiritual battle in a physical sense by being chained to a Roman soldier. Paul challenges us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 10 that we must stand strong in the Lord and in His power and in the power of His might. The key is that we are standing strong in the Lord's strength and not our own. 
The word might in verse 10 is the same word that is used in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, when Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The word strength means all that we are. It is with our entire being. And I think the fascinating contrast to verse 10 from Mark chapter 12, verse 30, is this strength is literally all that God is. Let that sink in for a moment. Meaning that God has not only given us the strength to stand strong, but He gives us all of who He is. He doesn't just piece Himself out to us. He says, here am I. Stand strong in me. In all that I am. Put my character to the test. I liked this morning as, as Brother Adam was talking in Sunday school to see the mercy of God in the book of Judges and the grace of God displayed. That's God displaying all of who He is to people who don't deserve it. And folks, it's easy for us to look down on a book that was already written and it's easy to see the conclusion of that book and to say, wow, they don't deserve that. That's true. And then we kind of blind ourselves to what our own needs are. Who am I? Except by grace, I am the Israelites of Judges. I need all of who God is. And folks, the greatest aspect of this theology is he holds nothing back. James chapter 1 reminds us that when we lack wisdom, we're to ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and it does not upbraid us. He upbraideth not. He doesn't reproach. He doesn't rebuke us for asking. He doesn't mock us for misusing like we might, you know, to our kids sometimes. Gave you that yesterday. What'd you do with it? Oh, God simply says, you need wisdom? Thanks for asking. His wisdom is found through his word, and we'll find here in just a moment what that looks like. This necessitates we be praying for God's strength. It's the same application as, as James chapter 1. When we, we lack wisdom, we ask, for, we ask for it. God, I lack strength. I need your strength today. And I need your power in my life. It necessitates that the word of God richly dwell in us. I can't use the power of God if I don't know it. I can't live out the holiness of God if I don't know what a holy God looks like. I can't live out the love of God if I've never experienced his love. It necessitates that the Word of God have a primary place in our spiritual lives. And as I said this morning, when I arise in the morning, I need the power of God. When I go to work, I need the power of God. When I go to school, I need the power of God. When I'm with my friends and family, I need the power of God. When I'm in the privacy of my own home, I need the power of God. Isn't that the time where we want to lay the armor off? But dads, let me challenge you. That's not the time to take the armor off. That's the time to stand guard. Why? Because my kids are impacted by my choices. And Satan has no greater desire than to get to our kids. And it's our responsibility 
to love them the way God loves us and to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. In order to effectively be empowered by God, number two, we saw we secondly must be clothed with the armor that God has supplied for us. He says, don't just you possess this. Don't just possess it, you must wear it. How do we possess it? We come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't need to go to a surplus store and find it. I don't need to come to church on a weekly basis to inherit or earn it. Give of the offering to to make myself feel like I've, I've done the spiritual needs and I must have these things. That's not how it's done. God says, I've given you Jesus Christ as, my, as, your, as your sacrifice, the atonement made for your sin. And his death was all that required for you to obtain the armor. And all that is dealing with that. But he says not just to wear pieces of it. He wants us to wear all of it. Paul is telling us that it is not enough just to possess the armor, but that we must put it on and keep it on. The tense and the voice of this verb that he says, wear the armor of God and put on the armor of God, means that no one can do this for you. God has given us the armor, but he will not dress you in it as a little child. He expects for us to stand strong in him and to wear what he has given us. Folks, this is his will. So then why do we need the armor? Good question. We are not fighting just against the flesh, but an unseen battle with the devil and his hordes of demons. Let me remind you what the devil loves to do as a part of who he is. In his spiritual witness, I'm just going to fly through this for a second, and then we'll get to the armor. Right? So who is the devil? Remember, he's a liar. He seeks to defeat us by leading us to compromise the truth. How does he do that? Oh, he's not a dummy. He knows Scripture. He probably knows Scripture better than you do. And he'll twist references of Scripture just so that it, it causes you to, ah, something doesn't quite seem right there, but I think I know that verse well enough that that must be what it is. It makes you overlook his credibility. He quotes the, uh, the scripture, the word of God, and causes you to justify your sin. He will convince you that your sinful choice really is not that bad and it won't affect anybody other than yourself. He will convince you that the immediate gratification is worth it and that there will be no long term remedial effects. You bought into that one? Oh, nobody else is going to know. I'm not hurting anybody. I think we even have one other that I don't list here. I think Satan gets good at convincing us in the fact of saying, well, God hasn't punished you for it. So it must not be that bad, or God must not care. Isn't that kind of what he did with Eve? Oh, folks, Satan's not a dummy. His schemes are methods of craftiness. They're not impatient plans. They're not impromptu. They're well thought out. His plans cause people to think that he does not exist. He convinces people that right is wrong, and, or excuse me, wrong is right, and right is wrong. 
He afflicts people. He dominates and captivates sinners. He blinds the minds of the unbelievers. Have you ever asked yourself the question of how could you believe that or how could you ask that or how could you really think that way? Folks, that's the reality of the spiritual battle. He convinces people that their, their, their right choices really, or their wrong choices are really what's right. He wrestles with and against the saints. He tempts people. He despises prayer. We'll talk through that here in a minute. He sows disunity amongst believers to impact the power of the cross. Divides marriages, defiles minds, ruins lives. He even goes as far to say, I don't care how much torture you're under, the greater the better. And the more that I can impact, the less opportunity you have for the sake of the gospel. Folks, we must learn how to use our armor. It's not an option. I think every society says, or every generation says, the generation I'm in today is the worst, you know, is worse than the last generation. I think that'll be true for ages to come until the Lord returns. But I think in the reality of where we live, I think we ought to be looking ahead at this. If I'm not effectively fighting with the, the armor and I'm not learning how to use it, don't be, don't be amazed when your kids walk away. Young people, don't be surprised when you end up somewhere you didn't really ever want to be. It doesn't happen overnight. There's still small choices of saying, you know what, I don't need the armor today. I don't need wisdom, discernment. I don't need the Lord's strength today. So what is this armor? He begins in verse 14. Stand therefore. He comes back to this continuous aspect that we are continually to be doing this. And he begins with, I would argue, I don't think Paul put these in a random order. These are here intentionally in the places that he's put them. And I'm going to argue, I think, even the reality of he begins with the belt of truth here, in a reality that everything comes back to the belt. And I'd like for us to look at that a little bit tonight. We tend to think of the belt as an accessory, don't we? Holds my pants up. Makes me look sharp. We wear different colors to match our shoes, match our dresses, whatever it is that we're wearing. The belt is not an accessory here in this text. The belt is the necessity of what we need. Look at what he says. Stand therefore having girt your, your loins girt about with truth. The word of God functions both defensively and offensively, offensively as we'll see here in a moment. But he begins with understanding John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Word of God will be the piece that holds or makes the rest of the armor the most effective. All of the other pieces of the armor will be girded with the Word of God. So what does it mean to gird up your loins? It means that a soldier in this time frame would be ready for action. 
the belt in which he would take would oftentimes come right around the waist here in this area, and it would allow for a cinching for his robe to come up and be able to cinch itself up here underneath his, and be able to put it in the, in the, into the belt itself so that he could run effectively. I don't know about you, but have you ever seen a guy run when he's, his belt's not holding himself? It's a little distracting, isn't it? In the same way, a soldier. I, I've seen it. I've, I've been out in the Marines. I've been working with Marines. The Marines are known for being out in the field and doing things. It is, it is quite humorous. When a Marine is wearing their 85-pound ruck mark, their, their pack, and they forgot their belt. You know how hard it is to hold your pants up while you're on a, on a march? It's impossible. <laughs> it's humorous. I guarantee he never forgets his belt again. They even get creative on ways to keep his pants up. But the reality is that it becomes a necessity to who we are. It means I have no other distractions around me. By the fact of the matter that I have my robe up, I'm engaged to fight in any capacity that I possibly need to. I'm on guard at all times. Nothing hindering my mind from being distracted from the, from the task at hand. In essence, Paul would say here, to cinch up all your beliefs, to be in accord with Scripture, to be biblically grounded in one's practice. This idea of of wearing the belt of truth means I am cinching my beliefs as it relates to the Word of God, that my filter for everything that I do comes through the Word of God. I use a lot of military illustration, and it's appropriate with this text, but the reality, this is sometimes where we, we come. As, as a chaplain, I get asked all the time, like, hey, how do you work as a, as a Baptist, Bible-believing, fundamentalist chaplain in, in a very pluralistic environment? Can I tell you, it's not that hard. You know why? Because my beliefs are cinched up through the Word of God, and every decision that I make as a chaplain in the United States Navy filters itself through the, what does God's Word say, and can I operate in, in capacity of that? And how do I do that by operating through the Word of God so that Christ is seen in and through me, in the, through the testimony of the way that I live? I come, I come across a lot of weird belief systems. I always find it fascinating. People try to impress you with what they believe. It's like because you're wearing this cross on your shoulder and your chest that uh, they, they have this obligation to tell you that I don't believe like you do. And at the end of the day, I, hey, that's fine. I think you're wrong, and I'm right. But when, what, you talk about opening doors of opportunity for the gospel. Come. Tell me your beliefs. Can I turn it around and share mine? And the question that I always come back to when it's engaged in these conversations is, okay, but what is the basis for what you're telling me? On what grounds do you hold your belief system to? On what grounds, on what moral basis or compass, even if, you're, if, even if the Word of God isn't in the light of where you are, on what moral grounds do you have to stand on? Oh, folks, the Word of God is sufficient in and of itself. I need no other argument or plea. Yeah, Jesus died for me. 
just as God's word tells me. I love that little children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because it's all encompassed in the very word of God. For the Bible tells me so. So what is truth? Truth is divine. It comes from God. He is the author of truth. Truth is objective, meaning it's propositional. It's narrowly defined, concrete, factual, rational, not emotionally determined. It's absolute, meaning all that does not square away with the truth is a lie. Truth is immutable. It's timeless. It does not change. If it's true in the past, it will be true in the future. It's singular. One body fits together perfectly. It doesn't speak out of both sides of its mouth. It does not contradict itself. It's consistent with itself. It's comprehensive, meaning it's knowable and understandable. I love that Jeremiah paints that picture in Jeremiah chapter 9. That let not the, the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, or the wise man glory in his wisdom, but let him that boasts or glory, glory in what? That he understands and knows me, that God is a God who wants and desires for us to know and understand him. And he's given us all that we need in his word for us to be able to do that. Truth is authoritative. Binding upon our conscience and our lives commands us. It's powerful, never makes suggestions. It's determinative. It will have the final say in our lives. It defines who we are. It determines where we stand and what we do. Folks, let me tell you tonight, you know this, and let me remind you, everything in our lives begins with truth. Victorious Christian living always begins with truth. You cannot have a saving knowledge of Christ without the truth. You cannot grow in fellowship with Christ without the truth. We must know the truth. Let me ask you tonight, are you regularly reading the truth of Scripture? Are you regularly studying the truth of Scripture? We must believe the truth. It means that we cannot hold to them with an open hand, but we must cling to them with our entire heart. We must learn to love the truth. I put that phrase in there on purpose, learn to love. There are some truths about God that we just don't love, isn't there? Yeah. Like there's some commands that we just don't like to obey. <laughs> God, why would you put this in here? Because it defines the very character of who he is. That's why. We must meditate on the truth. And folks, as we begin to plow through the rest of this armor of God tonight, I spent so much time here on the belt of truth because, again, I think it becomes the focal point of how the rest of the armor gets put together. Number two, we see the breastplate of righteousness. Fourteen, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate of righteousness means I'm leading to Right thinking leads to right actions. It's a, it's a, a shield. You kind of have the display up there that's, that's kind of on, on, on the screen. 
that gives us a good picture of what this breastplate would look like. Sometimes, depending on the timing, it would be a metal-like shield or a placement over our, our entire body. It would cover all of the major organs in your, in your body, not just your heart. Sometimes what we, that's what we think about the first thing. But it would, cover, it, it would encompass everything. Depending on how the breastplate was done or that your, your style of fighting, it might actually encompass even to the back to kind of protect for, against the backside. Often would I have a chain link built into it so that a sword would have a harder time permeating it or the, the, the arrows that would be launched would have a harder time permeating into it. Ultimately, to, to protect the major organs. Why? Because you hit one of those, you're no longer living. We often associate the breastplate of righteousness with the heart in and of itself, and that's not wrong for us to do because ultimately when the heart gets attacked... We lose the life. Right thinking and application of the truth leads to right actions. As I meditate on the truths of Scripture, what do I do? I tend to act right. Naturally follows the putting on of the belt means I know the truth and I live out the truth. My desire with the breastplate of righteousness is that I protect my heart. Why? Because I know in and of myself I am sinful and desperately wicked. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and I need to protect it at all costs. But it's only as protected as my understanding of the truth. I think it is the the breastplate that we typically take off first. I mentioned sometimes when we're in our home, that's when we want to take off the armor. We let down the guard. And what do we have access to? Right to the heart. He gives us number three, to march confidently with the peace that comes through the gospel. Having your feet shod from verse 15 with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I like the picture here that is displayed of a Roman soldier's shoes, right? They're not the combat boots that we would imagine in today's society that are well protected of my feet with good grip in any scenario and terrain that I need to go over. It would take a lot for something to kind of permeate those boots necessarily. You don't see a lot of protection on the upper part of the foot, do you? No, but it would have these nails that would be on the bottom and purposely nailed into the bottom of the, of the leather sandal So that would give them traction that if they needed to stand firm and stand guard, they're not sliding. They're able to stand their guard as much as possible and then to plow forward, to move forward as necessary. And I think it's important for us to stand here beginning or beginning to to, to have this view in mind that I first must stand guard and stand firm in where I'm standing and then understand I can't just stand there. I need to press forward. knowing that I'm going to have the grip that I need. Standing in defense of the gospel. That's what these shoes represent. We're marching forward with the gospel. We are ready and actively working to advance the gospel deep into our hearts and into the hearts of others and wide out into the world so that the lost world could be saved. We know the truth, we live the truth, and we carry out the truth. We press on. Then we get the picture of the shield. 
and I know I'm flying through this, but I, you know, I know some guys, I, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 62 weeks over this whole armor of God. I get two services, so we're, we're flying. The shield of faith. I think this shield is fascinating to me. This is not sometimes like our little kids' flannel graph pictures display of Captain America-style shield. We were holding a, you know, a circular a shield there that was used at that time, but the reality of the Roman soldier and what Paul is describing here is a shield that would be about two and a half feet to three feet by about four feet. And it would cover enough that one can, could duck underneath and be able to, to move effectively in the battle as necessary. It is not a light shield, let me tell you. It's heavy. It's cumbersome. It would often have leather around wood to provide a thick coverage and ultimate safety from the arrows that were launched. It had a brass lining to the outside to give extra protection from a sword hitting the side, as well as to keep the, short, the shield together. It would often be wet, adding extra weight to put out the fiery arrows that would come or would be launched and meant to explode on impact. So individually, the shield of faith is us resting in the truth of God's word, taking God at his word. I know the truth, and I'm going to apply the truth and trust him. There are times that, folks, you know this as well as I do. There are times where we know the truth of God's word, and we simply just say, God, I just don't understand what it is that you're doing. But I'm going to trust as, light, as, as you've remained faithful to me in the past, as you've remained faithful through, through, through time and time again of history and the, and the stories that I find in your word, the consistency of your character. I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. Help me to apply my shield. You know, there's another slide here on the second one I'm going to show us here. This is the other facet that I think sometimes that gets overlooked when it comes to the shield of faith. The Christian life was never meant to be about the individual. It's about community. And sometimes we think to ourselves that this is the battle that I'm going through. Folks, that's why we gather here on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening and on a Wednesday night. Why? Because we're coming together to bear one another's burdens. To walk through the Christian life together. Folks, that's discipleship. I'm growing in Jesus and I want you to grow in Jesus the way that I'm growing in Jesus. Come alongside. Let's grow together. We're partners for the sake of the gospel. And the fact that when this community of soldiers would come together with their shields, it would make them almost an impenetrable force to be reckoned with, of great protection. It would be hard for an army to come against them. It would be hard for any type of arrows to permeate anything that they have. The swords that would come with the horses could only really kind of try to knock down the first shield, but would get nowhere else. And folks, when we come together as a collective body of believers and we stand firm in our faith in the truth of who God is, you know what we've done to Satan? We've made him into, into almost nothing for what he could do for the, because the power of God is what permeates all of that. Communally standing together in the fight. 
The sad part, though, in our, most of our Christian life and most of our Christian community is the thing that we lack for this to be able to be effective is accountability. We fear accountability because we think, well, somebody's going to know something about my life that I don't really want them to know. And out of fear, they might use that against me. I don't really want people to know, so we kind of put on a facade. Putting on the facade means you take one of those shields out and you've exposed the community. The accountability is necessary because it holds us together through the power of Christ. Remember, discipleship is us growing together in Christ. Paul says the things that I don't want to do are the things that I end up doing. The things that I don't want to do are the things that, or the things that I ought to be doing are the things I don't do. Paul had the same sin struggles that you and I do. But we come together and we say, for the sake of the gospel, will you help? For the sake of my relationship with the Lord, my fellowship with Christ, will you help me? Will you grow with me? Will you come alongside? The helmet of salvation, verse 17, comes back into almost a command. This isn't one coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Remember, we were given the armor at the moment we placed our faith and trust in Christ, but this has to do with our assurance of salvation. The helmet here, you, you saw in the beginning slide that we had of the very the, uh, fighting effectively, the difference between the two helmets. The one had that red fur that's coming across. That would be a, an officer's helmet from the, from the Roman period. This was more than an enlisted guy. That's how they would tell each other apart. Who was who? But it protects the head. It would oftentimes come around the back of their neck so a sword couldn't just come in and slice. It would hit the back, kind of protecting that shoulder area. It would come down along the cheekbone again to kind of protect its face. And then have something there to protect its eyes on the inside, just that line of that metal line coming down. On the inside would probably have some leather to make it a little more comfortable to be able to wear. A little easier to use. What is this helmet spiritually? It's having the assurance of your salvation. It's not in what I have done towards God, but what he has done towards me. It's not in walking an aisle, praying a prayer, being baptized, going through the motions. For this assurance comes because God brought the word to me. God opened my eyes to see and understand the truth. God convicted me of my sin. God drew me to himself. God gave me the desire to be saved. God changed my heart. God gave me repentance and faith. And God gave me an inner certainty that I belong to him. And God gave me confidence in the perfect atonement of Christ, and he changed my life from the inside out. This assurance is showing that the helmet of salvation is showing and reflecting that God is bearing fruit in my life. God is transforming me more and more from a pattern of sinfulness into a pattern of righteousness. It's to be convinced that the victory belongs to the Lord. It is the sovereign hand of God that brought you to Christ. It is the sovereign hand of God that keeps us in Christ. And it is the sovereign hand of God that will bring you to glory through Christ. That assurance is knowing 
confidently the truth of God's word, that I claim the promise that when I place my faith and trust in Christ and Him, no one can remove that. And I walk about knowing in my sanctification process that I still have sin issues, but I'm a work in progress that God is working on. And I'm thankful for His grace and His mercy. And he concludes here with two pieces that are valuable and important for us to understand. The offensive side and a line of communication. He says, take the helmet of salvation in verse 17 and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword is not, again, like, not how we like to display it as, you know, a, a three-foot long sword that's, that's quick for, you know, off-the-horse type of, of, of fighting. But realistically, probably about an 18-inch dagger style. The sword, if that was the case, he would, uh, Paul would have used a little bit different word in the Greek text to indicate that longer sword, but he's giving us here this understanding, this, this short hand-to-hand combat. The sword comes from the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, right? Which is the Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit's direction and wisdom in our hearts and our lives as we apply the Word of God into our scenarios, into the spiritual battle in of itself. The Spirit places the swords into our hands. He is the giver of this sword. While we reference which is the Word of God, this is the entirety of the sword, and we use it as a two-edged sword, as, 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 first, or as Hebrews tells us what it is, sharper than any two-edged sword. The reality of its effectiveness is when it's most given in our times of temptation by the Holy Spirit and says, fight with this. Quote this. Meditate on this. And we fight Satan with the very thing that he hates the most. And yet he knows the most. And we use it against him in the ways that he despises. It's given to us by the authorship of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to have understanding and the Holy Spirit enables us to use the word property, properly. Excuse me. This is what Paul is intending for us to understand. In those moments of temptations, again, by indicating, say this or quote this. Have you ever had conversations or maybe you're just having a witness opportunity? And there's times where just scripture comes out of your mouth and you're like, I don't know where that came from. I didn't even know I had that verse memorized. Folks, that's using the Word of God. That's using the sword of the Spirit. It's the Spirit saying, God, I, I, I don't know what to say here. I need your wisdom. And God says, let me give you the dagger. What I like about the, the thought process in that is in those moments when you're like, wow, I have no other answer but God. Why? Because I can't bring anybody to Christ in and of my own self. It needs to be the work of the Spirit. It doesn't mean we're lazy with our understanding and memorizing of God's Word, please. But it is in those moments that the Spirit guides and directs our thoughts as we ask. He says, here, use my Word in this way because it's quick, it's powerful, and sharper than any other philosophy you might ever want to use. 
Our defense just became our offense. He's not using the word logos here, as we oftentimes think about the entirety of the Word of God in of itself, the logos. But he's using a specific word here called rhema in the Greek text, meaning an individual truth out of the entirety of the Word. In the appropriate moments that we desperately need them. Given at the moment that is necessary to fight effectively at the opportune time, it repels temptations that Satan hurls at us. But folks, let me tell you really quickly, I think it's important for us to park here for just a moment. Using the sword of the Spirit means I have to be trusting and reliant upon the Spirit's work in my life. There are times I don't doubt in the same way. I know I, most, I, maybe it's just me, but the reality is, you know, that I've had those moments of temptation. I just quote a Bible verse, and I'm like, how come I can't get victory over this? It's not the merely quoting of a verse that gives us victory. It's the meditation, meditating on the truth of who God is in the midst of those verses. If I'm not taking the time to actively be engaged in the Word of God and then expect the Word of God to work for me, He might, He will at times. But the reality is all it does is create a bitterness because we say, well, I I quoted this Bible verse and it didn't work. And God says, but you don't know me. You're harboring sin in your heart and your life. I cannot hear. Repent and turn away. It leads us naturally into this last piece, I think, in verse 18. I think we'd be remiss if we cut off the, the armor of God here without going into verse 18. I put here just to keep kind of a military style, maintain good radio checks. The Roman soldiers wouldn't have had radios. But they would have had a messenger of some sort to get the message back that was needed. They'd have people in different scenarios in different places to relay messages or or signals, as they were, of where the enemy was, what's taking place in the battle, when to bring more troops in. And as Paul begins here in verse 18, praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. He gives us two pieces here, two focuses. Praying vertically, our first and foremost responsibility. Keeping our line of communication here open. Communication directly with the Father reminds me of standing in the strength of God. God, I have no ability to do this. I need your help. God, I need your wisdom today. God, I'm about to face some coworkers who are, they don't think like I do. Would you give me wisdom to know how to respond? God, would you give me wisdom to have opportunities to, to give the gospel? Would you give me wisdom and opportunities to encourage? Would you help me to apply appropriately? A soft answer turns away wrath. calling on Him to demonstrate His promises of Scripture in that situation that I am currently facing. You know, God takes no greater joy than us claiming His promises and challenging Him to keep it. 
He tells us to be holy, and we, we pray back to God, well, God, if I'm to be holy, then you, I, I need you to show and demonstrate to me how you've been holy. And he says, well, open up my word. Let me show you through the test of, of your, my word. I'll, say, I'll show you how, what holiness looks like. And I'll give you my spirit's power to live it out in your life. I'll give you wisdom in what it looks like in your life practically. He begins with our open lines of communication by calling on him. And then he also opens it up to praying horizontally. Communication with the Father concerning the battle of saints around me. Just like the faith, holding the shield of faith is a community event, prayer is also a community event. Anytime you see Paul pray, oftentimes Paul is praying throughout the, for the Pauline epistles in light of others around him. God, would you do a work in this believer's life? Would you work here in this scenario? Hardly ever does Paul pray for something about himself. Would you remove this, God? Would you do this in this fashion? It was always on behalf. Would you help them to see an attribute or characteristic of him? Communication with the Father concerning the battle of the saints around me. It's not a time to gossip. It's not a time of judgment. Simply just accountability. Learning to love my neighbor. Carrying their burden. Walking in a lifestyle of discipleship. So what about you today? I know I've gone long. Thank you. Let me ask you, do you possess the armor of God? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Are you wearing it? Is it a part of who you are? Without this armor, you are on the losing side of the battle. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, let me encourage you to talk with someone tonight how to receive this armor. Christian, are you wearing it properly? Are you wearing all of it? Are you learning how to use it? As we reiterate, from the very beginning with the, the belt of truth, everything comes back to the belt. The word of God in and of itself is the truth by which we ought to grasp and hold. We learn to stand in the Lord's strength by reading, meditating, and memorizing his word. We know the truth. We live out the truth. We advance the truth. We live confidently in the truth. We stand behind the truth, we fight with the truth, and we commune with the truth. You have a great power in your possession, folks. So let's be strong soldiers of the Lord, both as individuals as well as a collective body of Christ as we fight the spiritual battles all around us.